Hi, everyone. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Um, can you believe we got this remote working uh, 45 seconds ago? Uh, so thank, thank God. Thank God. God is with us. And Sean, we're okay. Thanks. All right. So um, we're going to talk about, by God's grace, uh, the Healthy Marriage Toolkit, the Healthy Marriage Toolkit. And uh, some of you might be wondering, what is a toolkit? I actually think everybody probably already knows, but I'll just tell you anyway. According to, oh great, okay. According to the Collins English Dictionary, a toolkit is a set of tools to be used together or for a particular purpose. A set of tools designed to be used together or for a particular purpose. So we're gonna create a toolkit together today. In marriage, in marriage, we always tell you that everything is united, everything is for one person, uh, like as if you're one uh, unit, but actually the toolkit that we're gonna talk about today is yours personally, that is individually. The toolkit we're gonna talk about today belongs to you as a person, as an individual. You may already have some of these tools, but they might be stronger or weaker than some of the ones that your spouse has, okay? So all the tools in the toolkit are available to you. And even if your spouse isn't using theirs, so just imagine you have a toolbox, your spouse has a toolbox, and um, if your spouse isn't using theirs, you can still use yours. The work doesn't stop because you have your own toolbox. I can actually tell you in real life, when I got married, my wife had a set of tools that she brought in. It was a, it was a pink toolbox, it was black and pink. And, and she had her set of tools, and I had my set of tools. And we had different tools in our toolboxes, but some of them were also very similar, right? All right, so there are six core tools for your toolkit. And I wanna break them up into two categories. The first category is how I think. That is the first category of tools. And there are three tools in this category. The, uh, the second uh, category is what I do, what I do. So the first one is how I think, and the second one is what I do. And there's also gonna be three tools in that second category. So there's six tools in total. So the first uh, three tools are gonna be a saw, and I'm gonna explain what these are in case you've never used them, uh, a jackhammer and a paint roller, a paint roller. So the first tool that's a saw is my experience does not equal or is not the same as my spouse's experience. That's gonna be the saw, and we're gonna talk about each one of these. The second one, the jackhammer, is that I am contributing to the challenge. And I want to tell you in a few minutes why we chose a jackhammer for this tool. And the third tool, the paint roller, is my spouse is good and is my teammate. These are the three tools in the how I think category. And now we're going to have a hammer also, a flashlight, and a ruler that looks like a special kind of ruler. I actually looked it up. Some people think it's just called a triangular ruler, it, that it is also a name, but it's, the formal name is called a set scale, but we're just going to call it a ruler, okay? So the fourth tool, the hammer, is going to be invest in yourself. These are things that you do. The flashlight is going to be help your spouse flourish, and the ruler is going to be pray with the right mindset. And I am so excited to talk about every single one of these. All right, so the first thing is that my experience is not my spouse's experience. Why a saw? Why a saw? You need to split your perspective of there being one experience into two. Have two perspectives. And very often when we're dealing with conflict in marriage, we just look at this is, this is how things should be. This is how things should be. And you only have one perspective. So the reason why we're showing a saw here is because when you're interacting with your spouse, and I can tell you this applies when you're in conflict and even when you're not in conflict. There are two perspectives. You can even go on vacation and you're both really happy about your vacation, but you're enjoying the vacation and experiencing the vacation in two different ways. So you have to split your perspective of there being one experience into two. Try as much as you can to carry two perspectives. No matter how powerful your feelings are, no matter how obvious or clear your perspective is, there is another one that is equally valid. Your spouse's perspective is no less important 
no weaker, no less valid than your perspective. Even if you feel very, very, very strongly about your perspective, right? So at least 95% of the time, and my brothers and sisters, I want to tell you this from experience. I don't just mean my marriage. That's not, the, that's not what I'm, the experience I'm referring to. From professional experience in dealing with couples, at least 95% of the time, if you are hurt and offended, so is your spouse. If you are scared, so is your spouse. If you feel like your needs are not being considered, your spouse feels the same way. And sometimes I'm just sitting with a couple, and then I'm like, you know, it sounds like you don't trust him. And then the guy raises his hand, he's like, hey, I don't trust her either, right? Or same thing, and I say to her, uh, hey, or I say to him, hey, it, you know, when she said that, it sounds like you felt very hurt. And then, and then, he says, yeah, and he nods his head like, yeah, yeah, I was hurt, man, I was hurt. And then that's already like a big deal for a guy to say something like that. But, but then, then the, the, the wife says, I was hurt too, right, when he neglected me or he didn't pay attention to what I wanted to say. So I have never met a spouse that wants a bad marriage. Like usually two couples are coming into therapy and they're at odds with each other, they're fighting, whatever. But I can tell you, never have either of them ever woken up and said, hey, how am I going to screw up my marriage today? No one does that, right? No one thinks that way. So everyone, every spouse wants a good marriage and wants the pain to stop. So it's kind of crazy that you could be so uh, against each other but at the same exact time, have the same exact goal in a very powerful way, which is that both of you want the pain to stop and you want your marriage to be better. So how can I embrace two perspectives? And so you'll see now that the structure of the six tools, we're just going to explain why we were using this tool. We'll talk a little bit about it, and then we'll say how to do it. And that'll be uh, how we cover the six tools. So how do we embrace two perspectives? And remember, this tool, the first three tools, are in the category of how I think. So what happens in your mind and how you're thinking about the problem that you're facing affects everything else that you're going to do, right? There's actually models of therapy based on just that, okay? So say to yourself, my spouse has a different point of view about what is happening, and my spouse is trying to protect themselves from being hurt. This is how you think. You have to think this way. You're in an argument, and you're, maybe you're getting yelled at, or you're, you're feeling like your, your boundaries are being violated. Say to yourself in that moment, my spouse has a different point of view about what's happening and is trying to protect themselves from getting hurt. Because remember, if you're hurt, your spouse is too, right? Also, before demanding that your spouse understand your perspective or asserting your own perspective, ask about theirs. When I'm, the next two bullet points that I'm going to show you are going to save you at least three therapy sessions. If you can do what I'm going to show you, you will, have, you will need less therapy sessions. I really mean that. And the only thing that I'm being conservative on is the number three because you might save yourself seven to ten if you can learn this skill. Because all we're doing sometimes in therapy is just teaching some skills that I'm really going to put into bullet points, okay? So just calmly say to your spouse, I just calmly, I think we have two different points of view. Can you explain yours to me and then I'll explain mine to you? And there's a little, there's a one more step, the, the money step, okay? Then you say, play back what you're hearing. Like if they say, hey, when you did this and this and that, I felt this and this and that. You just say, hey, what I'm hearing you say, just to make sure I'm understanding, is that when you did this and when I did this and this and that, you felt this and this and that, right? And then they're going to say, yeah. Like once, once you do that, there's going to be a lot of nodding, a lot of hearts opening up. And then you say, do you feel like I understand what you've explained to me? That's a big point, big question. Hey, do you feel like I understand what you're saying? That's the, that's the question. Because some, what are we all fighting for? We're fighting to be understood and heard, right? We feel like no one is listening to us. Our, the person who we care most about is not connected with us. So we're just fighting and fighting and fighting. Then say, is there anything else that you'd like me to understand, right? Please, if you can do this um, and you only take this away, we're probably all right for the rest of the day, all right? This, is, this will save you a lot of trouble. All right, the second tool is a jackhammer. Do you know what a jackhammer is? Has anybody raised your hand if you've ever seen a jackhammer before? 
Okay, have you ever used a jackhammer before? I've actually used one uh, back on the East Coast. We were renovating the church, and we decided to excavate a basement. And of course, you know, in, in typical Egyptian fashion, we decided not to use any professionals. So Sunday school kids and priests, and we're all just in the basement, covered in dust, and figuring out how to use heavy and professional machinery. Uh, God protect us all. So... We're using a jackhammer. Jackhammer is this thing that you do. It goes, right? And it breaks through heavy, heavy rock, right? Or heavy, like very strong, tough material, right? So why a jackhammer? Because this, the most powerful tool in the toolkit is, is for the most powerful obstacle in marital conflict. The most powerful tool in your toolkit is for the most powerful obstacle in marital conflict. So... Every conflict has at least two people contributing to it. Every conflict has two people contributing to it. The minimum required number of parties to have a conflict is two. Okay? I just, just, I'm just trying to make that point super clear. The minimum required number is two. Okay? If you go below that, you have no conflict anymore. Right? Yeah, there's no more conflict when you do that. Like, if you just go below two. And there's only one way to go. Like, there's only one. You could just remove yourself. All right. So, uh, if you fail to see your contribution to the challenges in your marriage, you will never fully resolve them. They will always come back in some form. One of the hardest obstacles that we face when dealing with in therapy is when one partner cannot see that they are part of their own problem. That is, that, that just takes so much work. You know, you start to, what do you have to do in that? You have to start to break apart the conflict and go piece by piece. What happened here? What happened there? What did you do? What did you do? What did you do? What did you do? And finally, maybe after some time, maybe some months, one of them says, you know what? If I only didn't do that part that I did, we, things would have been very different, right? This is a very powerful tool. So it's often hard to see that you're contributing to your own problems. I want to give you some examples. Wow, there is no way you guys are going to read that on the slide. So I'm going to read it here. All right, so uh, these are some scenarios here. I'm just going to read them to you, okay? What I'm, going to show, what I'm going to say is four scenarios, and then I'm going to say what the obvious contribution is to the conflict is, and then what's the less obvious contribution. Because what I'm trying to give you an example of is that it takes two to have a conflict. And if you're in a conflict, you're contributing to it, right? First scenario. I'm just going to read this quickly, okay? The wife makes a criticism of her husband. So the husband withdraws emotionally and physically. What's the obvious contribution here? The obvious contribution is, well, why is this wife being so critical? Don't be so critical. Why is the wife critical? But you know what the less obvious contribution to the conflict is? That the husband's withdrawal feels like a punishment to the wife. The husband withdrew emotionally, pulls away, right? Uh, maybe he stonewalls her, maybe he gives her the silent treatment, maybe he just goes and ends up just watching TV or plays or spends time with his friends for hours and hours and hours. I actually just heard recently an example of that. Uh, um, and and when, that, when, he, when it feels like a punishment to the wife, it leads her to pursue his attention more and become more critical. Because she, she's hurt, so she's just saying, hey, like, let's talk. Let's, and, and so she keeps pursuing him like, to talk and to correct the issue. right? And, and then when she doesn't feel like that's working, she starts to try to poke by using some criticism, more criticism. So both are contributing to that scenario. The second one, the husband says emotionally abusive things to the wife, and this has been going on for years. What's the obvious contribution? The husband is saying abusive things to the wife. What's the less obvious contribution? How is the wife contributing to her dealing with this abusive stuff over time? And by the way, I am never at any point when I'm talking about abuse taking even 0.001% of responsibility away from the antagonist or the abuser. If someone is, doing, is, is uh, creating any type of abuse, they are 100% responsible for what they're doing. But I still also want to tell you, because I don't want to only leave the person who's receiving the abuse in this victim position for the rest of their lives, right? I want to give you some, some power. In this example where the husband has been saying emotionally abusive things to the wife and this has been going on for years, the less obvious contribution is that the wife has failed to establish healthy boundaries and reasonable consequences for harmful behavior, 
right? Like, like it, it happens once, maybe it happens twice, but then some real, real, real boundaries need to be set and there needs to be consequences. That's the less obvious contribution. The third scenario is that the husband continues to resist regular church attendance and prayer at home. And both partners fight almost daily about spiritual practices and the children's spiritual development. That's a pretty common scenario. The obvious contribution is why is the husband so resistant to spiritual engagement in this home? The less obvious contribution is that the wife has framed spirituality as a source of tension for the entire family. Like every time spirituality comes up, now there's fighting. What do you think the kids are learning? How do you think, what, what automatic emotions do you think the husband is, is learning to develop? And she's failed to create other ways to invest in the children's spirituality um, uh, you know, within the context of this obstacle. The last scenario is the wife is usually not in the mood, I put that in quotes, not in the mood to be sexually intimate with her husband and the husband is angry. The obvious contribution is that the wife doesn't want to be intimate, like be intimate. Right? That's what some people would just say, just be intimate, right? But what's the less obvious contribution? The husband has failed to see that sexual intimacy is deeply connected with other kinds of intimacy in marriage. He's disconnected or disintegrated the other dimensions of marriage from sexuality and has become demanding rather than empathetic. Okay, so I hope by, by seeing these examples, you can see that there are, there's always two parts. There's, you're contributing to your own problem. Now, I made an important statement and I said that you cannot resolve the issues unless both partners are acknowledging their contribution. Why is full resolution dependent on both spouses acknowledging their contribution? Why, why does it have to be that way? Why does it have to be that both have to acknowledge their contribution in order to fully solve the problem? for three reasons. First is, not you not seeing your contribution keeps you in the victim position. When you don't see what you're doing in the problem, you're, you're, the only understanding of what's going on is I am a victim, right? And that is a very disempowered position to be in, right? And it puts you in a position of being a victim versus empowerment and health, having some healthy control. The second reason is that if you don't know your contribution, you can't prevent it from happening again. Right? You, you, have, you, you have no control. And the third thing is, your spouse cannot fully reconcile with you if it's clear that you don't know how to prevent your contribution. Because how is someone going to reconcile with you if you're unsafe? And how are you going to become safer if you don't even know what your contribution is? A, a, a kind of a secondary point, by the way, is it's also very hard to forgive someone who doesn't know their contribution. It's not impossible, but it's very hard. Like if someone is saying, I didn't do anything wrong, I don't really care, whatever. It's very hard for someone to, to forgive that person if they don't acknowledge their contribution. Is everybody with me so far? You guys are following? This is like really tough stuff, all right? It's like a lot of, a lot of stuff here, all right? So how to identify and address your contribution to the tension? There's actually things you can do. There's things you can do. Uh, this is also a, a money-saving slide, right? If you do this one too, we're going to save you some, some sessions, okay? So, uh, no, but I really want everyone to feel uh, encouraged to get help, and we'll talk about that later. All right, so um, I, uh, the first step is identify the negative pattern in the relationship. Remember, so many of the things I'm telling you for these first three tools are not things you do with your spouse so much. It's how you think, right? So, identify the negative pattern in the relationship. Just sit on your own. Hey, what's the pattern? Almost always there's a pattern, right? Almost always there's a pattern. One does this and the other one does that. This one pulls away, the other one pursues. It's, it's, it's a pattern, right? Then identify what you do in that pattern. Like just imagine there's like a, a table and there's, you know, a husband, wife, right? Whichever one you are. And then just say, okay, I do this, my spouse does that, I do this, my spouse does that. I, so just, you just you look at your column. What do I do in that pattern, right? And then ask yourself, if I stop doing what I usually do in that pattern, what will happen? If I just stop the stuff in my column, what's going to happen? I can tell you, you won't even get to like the third row probably, right? You're just going to, you do this, she does that, you do this, she does that, and then uh, you stop, the, the rest doesn't happen. The pattern breaks, right? It just stops. Um, and then ask yourself, what could I do instead of what I usually do? This is how you think. Then repeat these questions until you come up with something more constructive, like what could I do instead? That's how, just keep repeating this, these questions. It's just two questions, right? 
the you, you identify the pattern in your role, and then you ask, if I stop, what will happen, and what could I do instead? If you don't know how to uh, go through this, a, a credible person can help. I'm going to use the word credible, the phrase credible person a lot. A credible person is someone who uh, is worth listening to, right? It could be someone like an expert, or it could be someone, they're not like a, like a professional, but they have a lot of experience, right? They have a lot of experience. Or they have, they're a very good model for what you want, right? And they're able to communicate what they're doing. They see how they've created their own life, and, and they can explain that, okay? That's what a credible person means. A professional, someone, or someone with, not a professional, but with a lot of experience, or someone who's a good model for what you want. That's what credible person means. So, if you can't find the pattern, find the credible person who can help you. Then, meet with your spouse when the tension is low. You can't do this when you're in the middle of a fight. Hey, I think we should, you know, talk about the pattern that we're in. No, it's not going to work like that while you're both, you know, holding up, you know, uh, uh, a different set of tools to hurt each other. Um, so meet with your spouse at, the time, at a time when tension is very low and apologize for your contribution. You know what's so amazing when you know your own contribution? The very next thing that you can do is you now have something to apologize for. So that's why I don't ever want to hear, or I mean, I will hear, I know, but I don't want to, uh, that... Uh, I have nothing to apologize for. You always have something to apologize for, right? You always have something, to, because, but you just don't know what it is yet because you haven't done the work, right? You can always say sorry, right? Uh, and then tell your spouse what you plan to do based on steps three and four. Don't spend the time and say, hey, you know, I did an analysis of this pattern. These are my contributions, but we should focus on your contributions, right? Don't do that, right? Just say, these are my, we're in a pattern. These are my contributions. I am sorry about my contributions, and I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do differently. And that's it, end of conversation. If your spouse wants to say something, they can. But remember, it's not necessary for them to do that, because how many people does it take to have a conflict? Two, and if you knock yourself out, there's no more conflict. There's no more conflict. All right, number three. Number three is a paint roller. It's a paint roller, and the tool is, this is the last one in the how I think. My spouse is good, and is my teammate. That's a very beautiful thing to say, actually. Right? It's actually very nice to say that my spouse is good, and my spouse is my teammate, right? Why a paint roller? When we are offended, our emotions drive us to paint an incomplete and bad picture of our spouse. We need to paint a more accurate picture. We need to paint a more accurate picture, not one that is driven by our emotions, okay? And it is not an exaggeration to say that we can see our spouse as manipulative, as a manipulative and evil monster, right? We can see our spouse like that when you're really, really hurt, you're really angry, and you're like, you know, my spouse is, is evil. It's a monster. Like, she's crazy, or he's crazy. Who, how, who does that to their wife, right? Who does that? What kind of crazy person does that to their wife, right? He's evil, right? And if you fail to balance negative, although valid thoughts about your spouse with the positive truths about your spouse, you will lose access to happiness in marriage. Just what I mean by that is this is happiness. You can't even go to it if you cannot balance the negative thoughts with the positive thoughts. Am I saying that the negative thoughts are invalid? Am I saying that you're wrong for seeing problems in the relationship? No, what I'm saying is that you need to paint a full and a complete picture, right? It's not just the bad, there's also good. And I wanna give you some examples of common emotionally driven negative and incomplete thoughts and how to repaint the image of your spouse, all right? This is another table with a lot of small text, so I'm just gonna read it for you, okay? So, I'm gonna give you four uh, examples of an emotionally driven, negative and incomplete thought, and what is a more accurately painted picture of your spouse, okay? First one, my husband wants to control me. That's it, that's the thought, right? He wants, his intention, is to control me. That's the negative thought, right? What is a more accurately painted image of your spouse? He is insecure in my love for him and afraid that he'll lose me if I become more independent. Do you guys see the difference between those two things, right? 
Like, my husband wants to control me, but the more accurate picture is that he's insecure in your love for him, and he's, he might be afraid that he'll lose you because of the insecurity if you become more independent. Does he want to control? Usually not. But sometimes it, it, is, it does happen. Another uh, negative thought. These are just examples, by the way. So I'm not saying like every time you have this negative thought, this is always the accurate repainting. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying these are v like very common examples, okay? Another one. The husband says, every time she sees me being happy, I heard this uh, a few weeks ago, I, real life example. Every time she sees me being happy, she interrupts and destroys my happiness. I, I heard this. What, what, could, what is a more accurate repainting of the image? Is that she feels burnt out, neglected, and unfulfilled in her life, and needs care for herself. She needs care, right? Another one, he always chooses his family over me. He doesn't prioritize me or love me as much as he loves his family. What's a more accurately repainted image of what, what the wife is thinking about her husband? A more accurately repainted image is that he's never really had healthy boundaries with his parents. It's hard for him to bond more to me because he doesn't feel safe with me or trust me due to the conflict in our relationship. So he's, he's never had healthy boundaries with his parents and it's very hard for him to bond more to me because of the conflict in our relationship. He doesn't feel safe, he can't trust me, right? Is everybody with me on where, where we're going with this, like how this is going? All right, let me get some nods just to make sure everyone is, is paying, okay. I don't want people to fall asleep here. All right, uh, next example is he, oh, uh, uh, last one is whenever we agree on how we'll manage our money, she doesn't follow through on what we agreed to do and continues to spend irresponsibly. She is an immature child and doesn't care about our family. That's the negative emotionally driven thought. A more accurately repainted image is she's using money to compensate for an emotional insecurity. She feels ashamed about our financial situation and she's never really bought into our agreements. You know when you think you agreed on something but really you were just telling your spouse what to do? Right, and you think you agreed, and they maybe they were yesing you, or just kind of, they were like, I just can't do this anymore. Like, whatever you say, okay, I'll deal with the consequences of not complying later, right? And they never really bought into these agreements, right? So, how do you paint a more accurate picture of your spouse? Number one is acknowledge unhealthy behaviors in your spouse. I, again, just to be extremely clear, I am not saying that your spouse isn't doing something wrong. So that's why I just want to say, if you're seeing something that looks wrong, there's, there's something wrong there, right? Like you may not have done a full-out comprehensive analysis, but something is definitely wrong if you feel like something is wrong. Maybe it's you, maybe it's your spouse, probably it's both of you, and, and, uh, but, but I want to acknowledge the unhealthy behavior. The second thing is, this is how you think, very important, identify and reject any labels and assumptions about your spouse and their intentions. For example, just reject these thoughts. He is selfish. She is, uh, you know, jealous, right? He is, you know, uh, not close to God. Like even that one, right? Maybe if we have some time, I can tell you a beautiful story about that. Um, and also reject thoughts about like she wants to manipulate me, like about their intentions. You cannot see, you know how you feel or you think you do, but you cannot see what is in their heart. So you cannot make any assumptions about what their intentions are. Their behavior, how you feel is one thing, but what they mean to do, that's a whole other thing and you cannot make assumptions about that. Then say to yourself, my spouse is a good person and wants good things even if he or she doesn't know how to make good things happen. And then say this one, because this one is kind of like a breakthrough point, which is that we both brought character flaws and misconceptions into the marriage. How can I support my spouse while protecting myself? The reason why this is a, a breakthrough thought is because it helps you to have compassion, right? Sometimes we feel very righteous or we feel very uh, uh, um, uh, innocent. We feel like a victim. Uh, but I want you to know that every single one of us, I am, I am definitely included, brought character flaws into their marriage. A lot of stuff. We all brought stuff into the marriage. We brought good things and we brought bad things, 
right? So when you are, are aware and acknowledge the bad things that you brought, you can have more compassion on your spouse because you're imperfect. So they have some space to be imperfect too. If, I just want to tell you, if your negative thoughts have persisted for more than three weeks, speak with a credible person. And again, that's a, a professional or someone who, with a lot of experience, not a professional, or someone who is able to model the life you want to live. All right, now we're going to move into the what I do uh, tools, okay? The what I do tools. So the fourth tool is invest in yourself. And the tool, we're, the image we're using here is a hammer, is a hammer, okay? Why a hammer? You are being pulled in so many directions and will lose touch with who you are and where your life is headed. So you need to nail down the direction of your life. You need to nail it down, okay? Marriage, parenting, work, friends, extended family, finances, service, the list goes on and on. As I'm saying, I think my heart rate is going up. So uh, when is there time for you? When is there time for you in all of this? If you do not invest in yourself, and I mean you as an individual, as a person, you will become bitter, resentful, less resilient to normal stressors, and ultimately a less effective person in general, right? If you fail to invest in yourself. So I want to give you a framework to invest in yourself. This is, I'm calling this the invest in yourself conversation. And this, you're going to be, this is something to do, and you're going to have this conversation with yourself, okay? This is something to do. First, get a good night's sleep, all right? Seems, uh, you know, overrated. Seems like a cliche thing to say. Everybody's telling us to get more sleep. But I'm just saying, just for this, you don't have to sleep for the rest of your life. Just, just for this conversation, sleep. Get some sleep, all right, before you do this, all right? Then schedule two hours to sit with yourself the next day with a pen and paper or a computer, but with all the notifications turned off, okay? You need, because you need to be rested. You need two hours of space. You probably might not use all of it. And then you need some, something to, to write with. Then pray for God to be with you and guide you in this exercise, okay? What the exercise I'm about to describe. Then create a table with the following items in the leftmost column. Just put all the dimensions of life, spiritually, physically, emotionally. I'm going to show you an example in a moment. Uh, intellectually, relationally, professionally, and financially. Just make, you have some columns, and just put all that stuff on the left-hand side. All the dimensions of who you are. Then create three more columns. How am I doing? What could be better? And what will I do differently in the next two weeks to make things better? Okay. By the way, am I saying this just for you? I actually, I, you know, when I was preparing for this, I found the table that I did for myself at the beginning of this year, right? I did this table at the beginning of this year. And it was a very, very uh, beautiful thing to, to, to reflect and then also to just read again months later, right? And to see, how am I doing again? Is this, uh, what's going on here, right? And then do the things in the last column, the one that says, what will I do differently in the next two weeks to make things better, and review this again in two to three weeks. I'm just going to show you uh, uh, an example here. Uh, this is, so you could see here the columns, my life, how am I doing, what could be better, and what will I do differently in the next two weeks to make things better. Uh, we talk about investing in ourselves all the time, but you know, we get all these like, piecemeal ideas. This is something that will work. Just do this. All it's going to take is a good night's sleep, which I think you will be happy you get. And it's going to take two hours of sitting down and doing some work. You'll review it again in two or three weeks, and you're going to be uh, much more aware of what's going on in your life. All right, so that's a simple one. Number five, help your spouse flourish. That's another thing to do. Help your spouse flourish. Why a flashlight? To help your spouse flourish, you need to search carefully for something that may not be easy to see. To help your spouse flourish, you may need to search carefully for something that may not be easy to see. What your spouse needs to flourish, to live up to their fullest potential in Christ, may be very different from what you need, right? And that's really, really important. And sad to say, very, very, very sad to say, um, it's, it's just sad. If your spouse isn't flourishing, they are probably slowly languishing. The word languishing means kind of like a wasting away, right? 
And that's really sad, you know? Like, you're, this is the person you're, you're committed to for the rest of your life, the person you love more than anyone else after God and yourself. And so you are uh, letting them waste away. And this happens. And, and it happens so slowly, you don't even realize it's happening. You don't even realize it's happening. I want to tell you some signs of flourishing or languishing. So I want to compare. What, do I, what, what is something that, that's flourishing? And what would that look like if it was actually languishing? Does everybody get what I mean by the word languishing? Right? And flourishing means like just growing and living up to your fullest potential at any point in time. And I want to give you some examples. Flourishing, and the, I'm not using specific people, I'm just saying like some descriptions. In flourishing, you have a comfortable pace of change and improvement with things getting completed before moving on to the next change. Someone who's languishing, there's little change in their life over an extended period, or many change efforts starting but never completing, right? Like, you know, there's some people who are like, hey, you know, I'm going to go to the gym. Three days later, they're not going to the gym anymore. Hey, I'm going to do this new business. Two days later, they're not doing the new business anymore. Hey, I'm going to uh, read this book. Start the book. They have 20 books that they started, right? Hey, I'm going to go find a mentor, right? I'm going to do this, whatever, right? So many change efforts starting but never completing. A flourishing person will, on average, have more positively charged interactions, like, th like things that are good. For example, uh, uh, in their interactions, they're going to have, on average, many more compliments, words of affirmation, optimism, and a low fixation on regret. They're not, they're not spending so much time thinking about things they regret. A languishing person, on average, more negatively charged interactions they have. Like, for example, criticism, low motivation, pessimism, a sense of trying to survive over an extended period. You know, I realized one thing that I needed to do a lot better is everybody asked me, hey, how are you doing? How's everything going? I just had this automatic response every single time of saying, I'm so busy, man, so busy, I'm really busy. Like, a lot's going on, I'm busy. And I'm like, who is not busy? You know, like, why, why am I saying that? Like, like and it's not, that's not the only thing going on in my life. I have other things I can say. Right? Like, like, thank God. I'm, and I'm busy, and I'm doing great. Like, I'm busy and great. Like, what's wrong? Why do I have to always respond with, oh, I'm, you know, and I'm trying to survive here, right? That's not how it works, right? That's not how it works, right? Um, so when you change your language, you change your mind and you change your heart. Uh, a, a flourishing person has three or more healthy friendships with, with, a, with a healthy balance of light and heavy discussions, right? And frequent interaction. What I mean by that is sometimes, actually let me just say the, the languishing person. They have one to two friendships probably, and they have mostly these heavy discussions with less frequent interactions or ones where the friends might feel burdened, right? Like, and the difference between a light and heavy interaction, a light interaction is just kind of like just joking around, standing up, laughing, doing whatever, going to do like some, some activity, or just sitting around and whatever. These are light interactions. You're just having a good time, it, it's fine. A heavy interaction is like, hey, I need to talk about something, I need some help. That's a heavy interaction, right? Are heavy interactions bad? No, but not having a balance is bad in your relationships. The flourishing person has a balance. The, the languishing person does not have a balance. All right, so how do you help your spouse flourish? How do you help your spouse flourish? First is be encouraging. Be encouraging. In general, be an encouraging person. Just learn to like, you know, like, uh, uh, I don't I forgot the word. It starts with an S, whatever. Just, just like seep, I think like just seep out encouragement all the time, wherever you're going, right? And that includes lifting someone's spirits even when they're not down. When, you lift, you, when someone is already happy, can you lift their spirits? Absolutely you can. Right? And that's included in being encouraging. Contribute positive energy. Smile, compliment, hug, help. Be present. Like, just be around. And appreciate the person. Just yesterday, I was thinking about this. Sometimes we appreciate the person because they're our spouse. We're like, you know, I'm so happy that this, that this is my spouse. Right? But I also want to add another level to that, which is just appreciate the person as they are. Like, even if they weren't your spouse. Like, just in your mind, you should see this person as being a great person. Like, they're just great. They're a great person. And sometimes we forget to think about that. 
right? We're so caught up in the context of marriage, right? And, and sometimes what ends up happening is like, you know, I should think they're great because they're married to me and I, it's kind of weird for me to not think they're great. So I don't, wanna, I don't wanna look bad not being with a great person. So I'm just gonna say they're great, right? No, but actually see your spouse as being a great person on their own, like a standalone great person at baseline. Support your spouse's interests. If you don't know what they are, Ask your spouse or help them explore their interests, right? And you don't have to necessarily participate in every interest, but support them appropriately. And then spend one-on-one -on -one quality time with your spouse very regularly. And when you're together, focus on your spouse. Please avoid distractions. The cell phone is like, is a thief. It's a thief, right? This is a thief. And, and you have to think that one, once you look at that phone, you will not get that time back. Your attention has been stolen from you, right? Also, um, uh, it's, it's disciplining you to be a very reactive person, right? As opposed to a proactive person. Like, the, it vibrates, so you go to it. So, so you're living life just reacting to something. So all that you live based on what the world is telling you to do, right? But if you're a proactive person, you're going to go to your phone when you go to your phone, Right? You're going to go to your phone when you go to your phone, right? You're going to choose, right? I'm not saying it's always evil, but it can steal a lot of things that are very important. So when you're together, focus on your spouse. Avoid distractions. Slow down. Just slow down your time with your spouse. Be a great listener and seek to understand and learn more about them. I can tell you just very simply... You will never stop learning about your spouse. You are always ignorant of things about your spouse. So there's always something to learn. It's just the problem is we don't slow down, we don't listen, and we're too distracted, right? So spend one-on-one -on -one quality time with your spouse very regularly. In all of the above, pay close attention to what works best with your spouse. Like, so just make a note. You know, my spouse really liked when I gave them this compliment. Or they really liked when I bought them this thing. Or they really had fun when we were doing this activity, right? Whatever it is. Or they went out and did this thing and they came back and they seemed so refreshed, right? Okay, pay attention to these things. All right, we now have the last tool. You guys have been doing such a great job uh, paying attention. All right, so pray with the right mindset. Pray with the right mindset. And I think everyone's going to tell me, ah, oh, of course, this is a church event. You had to say pray, of course, right? No, that's not why I'm saying it, okay? Trust me. No, well, I'm going to explain to you why we're talking about this, all right? But why a ruler? Why a ruler? Because when you pray correctly, it puts your heart in the proper posture for God to do his miraculous work. Prayer gives you an accurate measurement of where you stand. And let me just ask you a question. We were just discussing this with another group a few weeks ago. Is, do you think when you pray, God says, oh, I'm so glad you told me that. I forgot. You think God says that? You think God says, wow, if you didn't tell me that, I wouldn't have thought it was a big deal. But, but thanks for bringing it to my attention. It's a big deal now. right? I'm going to prioritize it because you said it. Does God change? Is God learning anything from your prayers, from my prayers? Is God evolving in any way? No. So why pray? Because prayer changes the person who's praying, right? Prayer is for me to change. I don't pray to God so that he changes his mind, his actions, or anything, right? God already knows everything. God is not changing. So I am the one who changes when I pray. So when I pray, prayer will humble you, will humble you, and give you compassion toward your spouse, and give you comfort in God's care for you. Very simple question that you don't have to uh, answer out loud. But isn't it so hard to pray for good things for your spouse when you feel very, very hurt by your spouse? Like, if you're very hurt by your spouse, it's very hard to say a prayer and please God, you know, bless my spouse, help them to grow and to be a better person and to come close to you and everything. You know, and maybe, maybe you don't want to answer that question. Imagine a coworker that you really don't like. And now imagine someone tells you, hey, pray for your coworker, for God to speak on their heart, for God to help them, right? So it's, when you pray, it humbles you and it gives you compassion because it puts you in this position of, God, I need you, like I need you, right? So it humbles you. And then it gives you compassion because once you start praying for good for someone else, you become more compassionate.
right? And it gives you comfort in God's care, of course. If we approach God simply so that he can change our spouse without openness to his work in our hearts, we miss the point of prayer. If I start praying and I have no intention of receiving anything from God, then I'm missing the whole entire point of prayer, right? All right, we actually have only two slides left, and the last one is a summary slide. All right, so I want to give you the complete prayer for your marriage, the complete prayer. This prayer, if you can, can pray this prayer and you add the details of your life, this is the complete prayer for your marriage. When you pray, ask God to help you see your flaws and your contribution to the challenges in your marriage. Number two, admit your sins and mistakes to God. This is, you see, it's the complete prayer is humbling, right? It's like it really starts to shift where your heart is towards your spouse. You could have just left an interaction, your heart is like a rock, like a stone, right? You have nothing. If there is an area in your, uh, in your heart that you know needs to change or a bad habit, admit this to God. Ask God to help your spouse thrive and grow in accordance with his will, not yours, right? Like, don't please, just honestly, it's probably okay if you never say the following again in your prayers. Please let my spouse be a better listener. It's probably okay if you never say that again, right? Please let my spouse be, you know, uh, more holy or something, right? Like, we, we are praying for God to, to do what we want with our spouse, right? As if like, God, hurry up, fix this broken, busted person that, that you gave me. So busted, right? Please do something. Hurry up, God. I'm, I'm suffering here. Can't you see? I'm trying to survive. I'm burnt out. Fix them already, right? No. Yeah, the, the manufacturer's warranty, right? Like, God, I wish I could send them back, but I know I can't. So at least just, you know, fix them while I'm, while I'm waiting, right? Ask God to give you both give you both the courage to make the changes that you need to make and tell God that you want to grow in your love for him. If you can do this prayer, your heart will change by the end of the prayer, right? I am not saying that this is like some magical formula. It's because when we pray, my brothers and sisters, God is listening. God wants to do the work on our hearts. He's not like, uh, you know, uh, he doesn't enjoy watching us not being in harmony with each other. Actually, marriage is a means by which God reveals himself to us. Like, God designed and invented, created marriage so that we can experience him more, right? So he, he's not happy that we're at odds with each other. So, to summarize the Healthy Marriage Toolkit, um, the first thing was uh, uh, a saw is that my experience is not my spouse's experience. And why this tool? Because you split your perspective of there being one experience into two. The second one is a jackhammer, okay? And this one is, the reason why we're using this one is because the most powerful, it's the most powerful tool for the most powerful obstacle in marital conflict, which is that I, ooh, ah, I am contributing to the challenge in my marriage. Man, that is so hard. You can't even, I can't even say it. It's so hard to say. Number three, a paint roller. My spouse is good and is my teammate. My teammate. Why, this, why a paint roller? Because we're painting a more accurate picture of our spouse. Number four, a hammer. Invest in yourself. Why? Because you need to nail down the direction of your life. Nail it down. You do it, right? You, and this means you personally. I'm not, saying do, I'm not saying do that for your spouse. That's the next one. You help your spouse flourish, which is a flashlight, because you have to search carefully for what will help your spouse flourish. And lastly, a ruler, which is to pray with the right mindset. Pray correctly for an accurate measurement of where you stand. Glory be to God forever. Amen. Um, are we going to do questions? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What should I do? Uh, thank you, Makar. Um, So we're going to open up the uh, talk for questions. Uh, we did notice that some of you are using the tech, which is awesome. 
So submitting your questions anonymously in Slido. So we have, sub we have that submitted. Um, Sean is going to moderate the questions for us. So, uh, Sean. So yeah, so if, if you guys have questions, um, uh, you know, and don't feel comfortable speaking up, you can go ahead. If it's, it's on your, I think your welcome brochure, this QR code for all of you, you know, fancy QR code people. Um, for those of us who are not as advanced, um, you can just go to that website, app.sly.do, and that's the meeting code. And you can type your questions there, and it's, it's purely anonymous. There is one question that I can go ahead and answer, because I saw some of you uh, taking pictures of the slides. One of them is, can these uh, slides be available? They will be available at the end. Uh, there are no secrets on there. That and we, we, That's the whole point. We want you to, to have this as a resource after. So uh, people taking out their phones to ask questions. Anybody want to ask a question in front of everybody? No? All right. Okay. I'm going to come to you, and then you can, and you can ask out loud. The invest in yourself table, how often do you recommend to use it? Uh, so um, do it, uh, when you do it, the first time, uh, because the last column says, uh, uh, what will I do in the next two weeks to make things better? And, and right before that you had said, like, what could I do better, what could be better? So the first time you review it, review it two to three weeks from then, right? And then if you feel like you're doing a good job of identifying what you could do better, then you can do it like every month for example, um, but, but, but even less frequently could be okay. It's fine, like maybe every two to three months is fine. Yeah, uh, once, once you feel like you're losing touch with yourself, which can happen given all the demands on our lives, then that could be a good time to get a good night's sleep, spend two hours alone and maybe, and, and do this table. Does that answer your question? Thanks. Makar, we have a, good, a couple of questions here that are about the same. Um, what if my spouse does not want to discuss their contribution Hard to let go if the spouse doesn't want to partake. Hmm. Yeah, it's very common, actually. Um, usually why uh, a spouse doesn't want to, uh, you know, engage in vulnerable conversation and all of that is, uh, is because there's a lot of unresolved issues, a lot of things that are unresolved, right? And also the, the, the tone of those, that category of conversations or those types of conversations has always been antagonistic. And so in other words, just to say it in one sentence, they have no hope that the next time you try to have that conversation, it's gonna go well. Like why would they? If the last 30 times we started a conversation like that, it's gone po very poorly and we ended up uh, being in an argument. So what I would say is two things. First is ask yourself, what could I do to start this conversation differently? Right, like why do I think that this conversation, the next time I have it, is gonna go any differently from how it, I've, it's, I've tried to, how it's gone before. The second thing is, maybe you need uh, like help, a third party to help you, um, and, uh, and that's very, very fine. Because sometimes what's good about having a third party is uh, you can just be responsible for you, they'll be responsible for them, and then you have someone who is responsible to challenge you both as a couple, to identify patterns, um, and um, they can teach you a lot of things. And also going to, um, once you kind of like elevate to that higher level of care, what that does, it kind of like resets like the process for you, right? Like you're really, really, really upset and all this stuff, and all of a sudden, and then you're like, okay, we're gonna go to a third party. What that does is it gives us this like, whoa, I've never done that before. That's, maybe there's hope there, right? Maybe, so it kind of resets the, the, the lack of hope, the, the poor expectations. So um, that's, I hope that answers the question. If not, if not uh, feel free to ask like a follow-up question in the, in the app, that would be really great. Um, it's kind of the same question, but maybe you can uh, still answer. It says, what should you do if you are frustrated by your spouse and not investing in themselves? Uh, help your spouse flourish. That's it. Just help your spouse flourish. And, and the more you help your spouse flourish, the more space you give them, the, the more you uh, eliminate your contribution to conflict, it creates a tremendous amount of space for your spouse to reflect on themselves. Like, it just creates all this space, right? The problem is, we are in, in so much like tension and toughness at, in our homes sometimes that you can't do anything good when everybody's scared and upset and whatever. Like, like for example, you know, it's when a therapy session starts and the couple is in the middle of a fight, 
You can't do anything else except deal with that fight, right? So the therapy session starts, they're both looking at each other or not, and they're just really, really, really angry. So what are you gonna do? I, I could have had like, like 10 skills to teach, I could have had some really deep questions to ask, whatever. I can't do any of that stuff. We can't do any of that stuff. We have to deal with the fight. So if we're just fighting, 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 there's no space to grow. We're just always, you're at war, right? You're at war, you're dealing with the war. So uh, to, if your spouse needs to invest in themselves, help your spouse flourish, eliminate your contribution to the conflict. And then at, when that's done, it'll probably just start on its own or you can start to ask and see how can I uh, support you in investing in yourself. How do you get started with this process when there's so much resentment and you are scared that if you start, it won't be reciprocated? Yeah, I, you know what? It probably won't be reciprocated. Like, just, just to tell you, like, if you're going to start this process, that's why there's a lot of emphasis on you as an individual. Because you have the power with God's grace and your humility and hard work to change your own marriage, right? You have the power to do that with God's grace and your hard work and humility. So, um, uh, like, try to see what, you, what are the issues, but I, I can honestly tell you that getting help can really give you some simple places to start, right? Can give you some places to start. I, I, I know it seems like, why are you kind of deferring to someone else? But, but probably by the time you get to that point, you've tried a lot of other things to help your marriage that haven't worked. So a third party can help. There's, by the way, um, one yeah. question here and one question. I think we have a follow-up question yeah. here. Sure certain boundaries already that were working in your marriage and aren't working anymore, how do you create like better or healthier boundaries from something that like evolved as in time with your marriage? Yeah, um, it's hard to answer that without like a specific example, um, but I can tell you that bound healthy boundaries, like the concept of boundaries will always work, right? So maybe the boundary that you set is one where it doesn't really make a difference. Like if you say, well, you know when you say to your kids, well, if you, can't, if you don't do what I say, you're never going to have broccoli again. The kid's going to be like, uh, okay, I don't want the broccoli anymore, right? So, like, I don't care. So, so we have to find boundaries that work. And just, you can just change them up to something that ma makes a, a difference or means something to the other party. But the main purpose of boundaries is really to show where you stand. Like, where do I stand, right? I, for example, I will not accept abusive, conversa uh, abusive words anymore. So... Uh, you say, very simply, hey, uh, spouse, I have, uh, I, I have been dealing with this a lot. I feel like I'm receiving a lot of abusive words, so, um, and I don't think I should, I don't want to do that anymore. So if I feel like I am receiving abusive language again, I'm going to uh, walk away from that conversation. I'm going to walk away, okay? I'm telling you now, this is, doesn't mean I don't love you. It just means that I am not going to accept it anymore. I'm going to walk away. And I don't mean to disrespect you. It's to protect myself, right? And then you just do it. And, and a boundary enforced is a very powerful thing. The problem is sometimes we, we describe the boundary, but we never enforce it. So, uh, like, just change it up to find something that works. Yeah, like, uh, but, but make sure it's clear and it's to protect you and it matters to them. And, and I think those are, like, the key components of setting a good boundary. Does that answer your question? Y you sure? I'm getting, I'm getting, like, half a nod. <laughs> yeah, it does? Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Like, once you start, like, mix, like, you sometimes you enforce it, sometimes you don't enforce it, the boundary loses a ton of power, right? So you have to, that's why to, to set healthy boundaries, you need a lot of time to think about the boundary first, like, on your own. Like, how am I, or, or talk to someone. How am I going to set the right boundary? How am I going to communicate it? How am I going to enforce it? And then let someone do, like, a, you know, well, what if this happens? Well, how are you going to walk away if you're in a car together? All right, how are you going to do that? What are you going to do? So all these different scenarios are things you have to play out. But then once you set it, it has to be enforced. There was another question uh, right Any here. Any questions? R Rami had a question. Rami, do you still have a question? Send oh, you send it in? Okay, okay. <laughs> okay. Good all right. Um, again, along the same lines, it says, what if my spouse does not wish to connect spiritually? For example, pray together before bed because he, she does not feel comfortable or prefers to be spiritually alone. Yeah, this is a very common thing, very, very common thing. Please, my beloved brothers and sisters, do not turn spirituality into a fight. Please, like please, please, please don't do it, okay? Very common, you're gonna, you wanna go to church on Sunday, 
uh, I hear this all the time. You know, uh, you're running late, or one is getting up late, whatever. You start saying bad things to each other. You're fighting on the way to church. By the time you get to church, your heart is not ready for anything that has to do with receiving God, right? And you say, hey, we got to pray three times a day. Da, 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 da. How is that going to, like, how is that good? All we're doing is associating God and spirituality with fighting and negative emotions and all that stuff, right? And also, please, let me just tell you the story now, the one I was planning to say. Is one time, I remember this, uh, I'll never forget this. I went to, uh, when I was younger, uh, someone who uh, really invested in me, and I'm so grateful for God's grace. Uh, I, I looked up to him so much, and I said to him, hey, how come you're so close to church and everything, and your wife, um, you know, you serve all the time, doing all this, he's serving all the time. And your wife, like, I never see, I could barely see her in church, and I don't really see her serving that much and all that stuff. And, he, and I was a little kid. I was just, like, asking these silly questions to just dumb questions. So, so, I, so he said to me, he said, you know, Makar, one time my wife asked me to go get something from her bag. And, I, uh, and he said, I used to think what you were thinking. And when I went inside her bag to get what she asked, I found an agbeya in her bag. And I never thought that my wife had anything to do with the agbeya and that she was praying, right? So, so don't, don't, like, um, you know, force a very specific form of, of spirituality and make it a conflict with your spouse, right? Definitely take care of yourself. Definitely, usually spouses who are not uh, like into, you know, church every single week are not gonna fight if you wanna take your, ki your kids to church, right? They're not gonna fight that. You can take them, they're not gonna have an issue with it, right? So just keep developing yourself, develop the kids. And then without any conflict, what you'll find very slowly with, with God's grace, you will find that they will admire your life. They will, they will, th this happens. Spouses, by living together, come, they kind of like converge. They become similar to each other. And, and your spouse will admire your life. I have a client right now who tells me about this. And it's such a beautiful story to see the change that, that, that her husband had over time uh, just by her uh, living a good life, right? Here's another question. Um, how do you stop making decisions guided by the desire to not feel guilt? And your spouse knows that they're guilting you into something. That's a tough question. I um, wish I had an example. Uh, so, um, okay, well. Uh, sure. It gives me more time to think. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, there's going to be a panel after uh, uh, later today. I am, I am really excited for the panel because there'll be a lot of, a lot of better answers, I think, so. So how do you stop making decisions guided by the desire to not feel guilt? And your spouse knows that they are guilting you into something. Yeah, so, so two things. One is, um, I wanna start with, with you as an individual who's asking this question, but it's for all of us. We all have like a guilt profile, like a guilt profile, right? Some of us, we, uh, we are, have been motivated for years by guilt. Like there are some people, when I talk to them, I, I feel that they feel guilty, right? They're guilty. They just feel guilty. Maybe they feel guilty for interrupting you. They feel guilty for, you know, uh, saying this. They feel guilty for saying that. They're driven by guilt. They're looking to be guilty. That's how they live, right? So I want you to check yourself. Why do I feel guilty all the time? Is it because my parents were always criticizing me? Is it because someone uh, told me that I was guilty for something bad that happened, right? Why am I feeling guilty all the time? Let me just tell you, in general, on average, most of the time when you feel guilty, you're, there's nothing for you to feel guilty about. So you have to reject that thought, but it also helps to understand your history and your profile when it comes to guilt in general. Now when dealing with your spouse, you just don't, don't respond. Don't respond to guilt. Like, like un, whatever, like if they say, how could you not do this for me? I am this and this and that. No, respond with why you're not going to do it, right? And, and explain, explain it, right? You have to just be clear in your explanation, but don't respond to guilt. It sounds like a simple answer, but just don't respond to it. And, um, and you're going to be really fine, honestly. Okay, we're going to do one more question, and again, you can keep sending in your questions because we'll, we can save them for the later uh, uh, panel discussion. And also, um, I'm, I'm noticing a lot of questions are the same. If you notice a question similar to yours, just like that one, rather than duplicate it, it'll just make it go faster. And, and it also moves it up in rank, so better chance of getting it answered. Uh, we'll do one more question. Um, 
if I stop my column of contributions, wouldn't that reinforce what the spouse is doing in their column, causing them to continue that behavior? Uh, almost never. Almost never. Like, when you stop your contributions to the conflict, uh, because what's, what's more powerful than that specific interaction is the pattern itself. And you have to know that, that the pattern that's happening in your conflict has, like, force. The pattern itself. The technical terms that we use is something called homeostasis, right? Like we have, or, or we have a dance that we're used to being in, right? Like just imagine two people dancing, right? If, if one of them just changes or stops, it stops, right? It just stops going. The, the pattern itself has force and has power. So if you stop your contribution, all the doors are now available to you to explore other ways of doing this, right? It's not necessarily going to, it almost never just enables this person. Like even if the person... Is, is like cursing. Like I actually, I remember a case where uh, the, the, the husband was cursing at the wife like all the time in front of the kids, everything, right? So we simply said like if, if uh, you curse, uh, like, like she's going to walk away and she's going to tell him in advance that that's what the boundary is. As soon as she started doing that, actually before when she told him that she was going to start doing that, the, the cursing stopped. That's it. It didn't enable more cursing, right? So um, uh, when you break your, the pattern, a lot of things change. So thanks for bringing the questions in, and uh, please keep sending them in, and we'll have a, a lot more opportunities. Glory be to God forever. Amen.